podcast this week, we swipe right on Daisy Edgar-Jones and Sebastian Stan, stars of dating horror movie Fresh. And the Phantom of the Open Writers here. Inside our pod. Yes, it's friend of the pod, Simon Farnaby. All that and the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that disagrees with Mark Twain's famous remark about how golf is a good walk spoiled. In fact, to quote his much more famous and wise distant cousin, Shania, that don't impress me much. Oh boy. (laughs) So you're Mark Twain. That don't impress me much. Oh no. So you think golf's a good walk spoiled? That don't impress me much. Anyway, hello, Paul. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, this week, we're back on Squadcast. Why are we back? Why are we in Squadcast? Like, is it because of my schedule? It's because of your schedule. Yeah. It's because of my schedule. Yeah. Okay. Because mm. it's insane and stupid. But uh, speaking of insane and stupid, I'm joined by... Oh! <laughs> I'm joined on Squadcast by my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Geek Queen Helen O'Hara is here. Hello. Hello, Helen. Welcome to a podcast on St. Patrick's Day, or should I say St. Podrick's Day, because we're doing a yeah. podcast and recording it on St. Patrick's Day, yeah. and you're wearing green. I am, and you're committing a hate crime against your people. So I absolutely you know. am not. I love St. Patrick. He drove all the snakes out of Ireland. He didn't entirely. There are some, um, oh, I learned on. the other day. There are a few. There's no snakes in Ireland. There are some, apparently some snakes no in Ireland. snakes in Ireland. According to the Natural Museum of History in Ireland, which I dragged you to when we were in Dublin, there are some That's snakes in Ireland. That's a load of shit. I'd like them to say that to my face. <laughs> well... I'm sure that could be arranged. They are besmirching the good name. The good name. The good name. The good name. And that's a hate crime against our accents. The good name. They're besmirching the good name of St. Patrick. Mm. Hey, I've got a joke for you. Oh, boy. What did St. Patrick say when he drove all the snakes out of Ireland? Good riddance. You're right in the back there, lads. You're right in the back there, lads. Because he had all the snakes in the back of his car. Right. Oh, because he's driving them, he was driving out, them of out of Ireland. Ireland. I see. You're right I in the see. back there, lads. Yeah, that's a great joke. Mm. Um, <gasps> so I, I love St. Patrick's Day because it used to be that this was a day off Lent. Now, I don't know the maths of that. I haven't counted it up. But in our house, at least, this was a day off Lent. And so I was very heavily encouraged as a young child to go off sweets for Lent. But on St. Patrick's Day, mm. you were allowed to have sweets again. That feels like a loophole. That feels like it's, that yes. feels like a bu- bullshit BS loophole. Yes, been... but the point is, it is a loophole, and therefore right. I'm a big fan of St. Patrick. <laughs> well, yes, uh, indeed, and also the snakes thing. Yeah, big, sure. big, yeah, yeah, that's, big props that's to St. Yeah, Patty for that yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, but uh, here's here's an awkward thing because for Lent this year, I gave up introducing a Mon Warman on the Empire podcast, and now ah, but it's a day off, so here you can he do is. it. Here you oh, go. Oh, no, what am I going to do? <laughs> no, only kidding. I, I gave up Lent for Lent. Uh, and welcome the 17th best dressed man in British film journalism, brackets Watford Division. It is, of course, a Mon Warman. Hello. I can always tell what type of podcast it's going to be by where you rank me. Sometimes mm. it's 14, today it's 17, <laughs> and there's, there's a whole Watford division. I went to a screening the other day, what can I say? I saw 16 people who were better dressed than you. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> all from Watford. <laughs> and they were all from Watford. <laughs> I want names and pictures. <laughs> they all they all fell into the Watford gap. Uh, Amon, welcome, welcome, welcome. How are you commemorating St. Paddy's Day? Apparently you're wearing something green. I am wearing green. You guys need to get your eyes checked. This is insane to me. I, you I need to get your this, clothes checked. <laughs> I put on this jumper specifically because I knew it was St. Patrick's Day. I knew that it might come up. I was like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wear green. For Chris and Helen, I'm going to wear green. And you guys can't even 
properly appreciate it. We're blaming your webcam, not you. We appreciate (laughs) the effort made, but like it looks exactly the same colour as the wall behind you, which I believe is cream from previous photos. No, no, on the other side of your other shoulder, you can see wall. Okay, that's a, yeah. that's a curtain. Okay, and it looks exactly that color. No, it doesn't. It do- from here. I'm not, it I does. look. I'm not saying it is that color. I'm just saying that's how it looks. It does. I appreciate does. the effort that you have made. But I don't your appreciate webcam the is you've made. undermining it. Next time yeah. I'm in the empire, so I'm going to bring this jumper in so you can appreciate <laughs> it fully. All right, you need to take a picture uh, of yourself <laughs> and then post it on the internet as proof that you're wearing a green jumper. Exactly. I shall. I'm wearing a green jumper. You're wearing a green jumper. Very green. That's one of the 40 shades of green. Uh, I'm wearing one of the 50 shades of grey. So we're we're all... Oh boy. (laughs) More information than I needed. Are my appetites appetites unique? Are they unconventional? Are my desires unconventional? (laughs) They are, pretty much. Uh, Let's not get into that. Let's not get into that. I'm not wearing anything for St. Paddy's Day. No, you are wearing some things, just Mm -hmm. in case people are worried. um, Yeah, I'm I'm not nude. That's, that's not that how we I celebrate. Can see. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is one snake. He can't drive out of Ireland. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Anyway, should we have a listener question? Oh, God, please. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> uh, how you how you doing with trouser snakes, Sir Simpaddy? How you doing with those? Uh, anyway, here's a question. And this is a question we, we toyed with on last week's show, uh, but we didn't do. Great story, Chris. Wow, that's amazing. Wow, I'm really, really sorry I missed that one. That sounds phenomenal. It says here you have anecdotes. <laughs> that's as good as it gets for me. Uh, all right, the question comes from S. Baven on Twitter. Stion Baven Curry on Twitter. What films that only have one sequel would you like to see get a third film or a second sequel? Uh, and Stion uses Young Guns and Cocoon as Utterly bonkers examples, the madness. <laughs> hey, I used to really like Young Guns when that came out. With the with the Bon Jovi soundtrack and all of the young Hollywood actors in it, 100%. Sign me up. Young Guns 3. See, if you had suggested this to me back in 2014, I would have said, hell no. But in light of a certain 2021 film, I would like to see The Amazing Spider-Man 3. <gasps> Whoa! Whoa, what a turnaround for the books. Whoa. So there you have it. I still wouldn't want to see that film. I'm very happy to see more Andrew Garfield. I do not want The Amazing Spider-Man 3. I'm sorry. But more Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man, sure. Absolutely. Yes, I, I don't know why you're saying that, Amon. Um, but I don't know what's prompted this, this fault of fass uh, from you, but uh, I'd be very interested to see uh, any movie that, that, that paved the way for this about turn. Uh, yes, that's a great suggestion. I think we may have our answer. I don't know. I think I've got one you might like more. Ooh. Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy. Yes, yes. Let the man finish the trilogy, I beg of you. Hellboy 2 was great. Yeah, it was. This is really good. Mm. This is, and it sets up so much for Hellboy 3. It sets mm-hmm. up, you know, Liz is pregnant, or twins. Will Hellboy become the, the beast of the apocalypse? Will Abe Sapien discover an artist other than Barry Manilow? These are questions that deserve to be explored and answered by... Mm. Hellboy 3. Exactly. Will the Giant's Causeway ever permit filming on the Giant's Causeway? Who knows? <laughs> I think they should. I think they should. Ben. I think I, they should. I still haven't seen the David Harbour Hellboy, but from what I hear, 
It's it, look, he's fine. He's not bad in the role or anything, but it, it, it's uh, no. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big no, big no for that one. This is tricky, isn't it? This mm. is a this is a tricky one. There were only two, three men and a films. That's is this is that they is, would be yes. grandfathers now, probably right. It wouldn't even be fathers of the bride anymore. It would be. Well, there's another one. <laughs> yes, <another> one. <laughs> yes, I like the Fathers of the Bride movie. The Fathers of the Bride. The Fathers of the Bride. The Fathers of the Bride. The Fathers is not the plural here. It's the, That's it's true. The, yeah. the Bride. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's the, yeah. So the Father of the Bride. So you want Father of the Bride three? Because mm-hmm. yeah, we all know that Steve Martin, Martin Short Magic. It's still there as only murders in the building. We could get Frank back. We could. We could get Frank back. The Frank would be amazing. Uh, and then you would also want then to have. Uh, three grandfathers and and a a little mother I don't know we'll workshop it I feel like we can figure (laughs) something out that's good that's good I I like it that's a good suggestion Amon have you brought literally just one suggestion no 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 I was was patiently waiting for you to enthuse about what you're enthusing about and waiting for waiting for my time Um, All right. but uh, the raid three I would love Mm. to see that Mm. Uh, okay the, the first two raids are great the second raid Still, that fight in the kitchen is one of the best things I've seen. <laughs> My life is so, so good. Have you ever mentioned that I was on set for that? No, you're shot? very quiet have I, about Have it. I never mentioned no. it? No. no, I don't think no. so. No. Somehow I've avoided yeah. that particular, I've, I was on set of so-and-so in this instance, but thank yeah. you for <laughs> thank you. For it's true, though. It. It's true. I was, <laughs> and it was awesome. Uh, so that would be one. As a fan of the National Treasure movies, Oh, I, I would love to see National Treasure 3. I don't understand why we didn't get, why we haven't gotten this film ages ago, because both of those films were well received, both critically and with audiences. Were they and well made, received critically? I think so. <laughs> I, I, I mean, by no means is Rotten Tomatoes like the, you know, the be all end all, but I'm checking this right now. Helen, only dogs can hear you. <laughs> I know. I'm just, I'm very sceptical of their critical reaction. I think, they were, I think they were well received by Total Nicolas Cage magazine and Practical <laughs> Cage and Your Cage. And I think everyone else just kind of went, mm, okay. But really? over time, over time, they have become beloved classics. That it, that over time, they have certainly, yeah, they've got some cult love. I will, mm. I will admit that, but I, I oh, would dear. dispute the, uh, what was that? Oh, what's he got? What's he got? <laughs> National Treasure, Book of Secrets, 36% on Rotten Tomatoes. 36%! <laughs> that is harsh. I like that movie. But it's like, not that harsh. It's harsh. But like, I think they make like a Disney Plus series now with the different characters. I'm like, I would like to see National, I would like to see National Treasure 3. I would like to see, and I think this has been announced, Sherlock Holmes 3, but it's been delayed and delayed and delayed. I don't know when it's coming out anymore. I think it's on the 32nd of February, uh, as far as I can tell. That, yeah, that movie, that that, I mean, they've missed a window and then some for that, haven't, it, haven't it they? It kind of feels like they have, yeah. yeah. I mean, when you've given, you know, given, up, given it so much time that Millie Bobby Brown has stepped <laughs> yeah. into the Sherlock Void, you know, that's kind of a Yeah, wild. well, Enola Holmes too is, yeah. is mm-hmm. on its way. On its way. They, yeah. they kind of shot it in secret. I hope they knew that they were shooting it. <laughs> I hope, you know. Didn't just follow Henry Cavill round with a camera. Yeah, I mean, that's what you do. That's your weekend. What? No, <laughs> my lawyer of... advises me to say that's not what I do. That's not what I do. I'm, anyway, I'm following Kal-El, not Henry. Yes. Was it this week you're disguised as a market stall, I believe? <laughs> it's all right. Uh, and my final suggestion, this is a long shot. Okay. But it's I... a long shot. 
<laughs> no. <laughs> I love The Mask of Zorro. It's one of my favorite Aww. films. The, the first one is great. Is yep. not one of my favorite films. No. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think a third film could really work. I think there was a comic, actually, this, this is the, the long, long shot part of this, but mm-hmm. there was a comic that had Django team up with <laughs> yes. Zorro. Yes. That does feel totally a little bit of a long do shot. do that mm. in live action, I yes, think. Yes, because totally Lewis two are compatible. <laughs> <laughs> you, could, you would have to amend a few things, granted, but I think I, I'd be interested to see what that might look like on screen. Well, they are all still super hot, so I guess it could work. <laughs> um, I, I have another correct answer, though. Okay. okay. And I think I'm going to be alone in this, but I am still correct. <laughs> sure. Yep. Okay, Sister go Act. Sister Act 3 is coming. Well, yes, but is it coming fast enough? I need it now. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Yeah. No, okay. I, I totally agree. Like, Sister Act, Sister Act 2 are classics. I watched them with my family growing up. Again, I'm going to have to quibble with the use of the word classics they are here. Classics. If, they are if, classics. If you turn on the TV and one of the Sister Act films is there, it's the law. You have to watch it to the I, end. I, I am sitting my ass down and enjoying yeah. myself. I mean, there's no question the Sister Act is possibly Harvey Keitel's greatest film. I don't think there's anything uh, that is. Nothing in his filmography that comes close. <laughs> <in> nothing. <laughs> um, all right. Wow, this is interesting. This is very interesting. <laughs> Sister Act. Sister Act. National Treasure. Hail Holy Queen. Okay. We're keeping right. it quite Catholic today. What's your favorite Sister Act song, huh? I'd have to say the very best of Sister Act. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> I really do like Hail Holy Queen and I will follow him. And, I'll follow him as a banger. And, and, and also just, um, uh, just Lauren Hill singing His Eyes on the Sparrow. Yes. Oh, just amazing. And then obviously, you know, the rap section of Joyful Joyful. Yep. Am I right in thinking Bill Duke directed Sister Act 2 back in the yes. habit, didn't he? Yes. Who directed Sister Act 1? Trivia question. No. Oh, it's one of those films. I've, I've actually, we've, we've talked about this on, on Empire in the past, um, for doing a quiz about films you know with directors you don't. So you know The Wrath of Khan, but who directed The Wrath of Khan? I know you'll know, Chris. <laughs> but who directed, you know, that Please. kind of that kind of level of film where everybody knows the film and nobody remembers who the, the director was. All right, that's good stalling, Helen. Who directed the Sister Act? <laughs> yeah, I still don't know. <laughs> was it Gary Marshall? It wasn't a Gary Marshall, was it? No, it wasn't Gary Marshall. It was um, Emile Ardolino. Of uh, course, old Emile. Directed, directed Dirty Dancing. Uh, directed yes. Three Men and a Little Lady. Uh, tragically, he died the year after Sister Act oh. came out. But, mm. uh, but yes, Emile Ardolino. Wow, and, which, and of course, Three Men and a Baby was a Leonard Nimoy joint. Yes, and Leonard Nimoy was the star of Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Oh! Directed by <laughs> Nicholas Wise. No, Kirk. Kirk. <laughs> Nicholas Kirk. No, what? This is terrible. Something is Star Trek wrong. <laughs> Nicholas Mayer. Nicholas Mayer. Yes. Yeah. Who also directed <laughs> some other films? Star Trek Six. Yay! Oh my God! All right, it's my turn to say some things. Um, so. <laughs> Um, I've said this to the podcast before, but I've said most things to the podcast before, and it's never stopped me, so I'm doing it again. At the end of Airplane 2, the sequel, there is a promise. <laughs> it says, literally, coming soon, Airplane 3. Mm. And that was... 41 years ago. <laughs> that was 40, it was 40 years ago when Airplane 2 ago. came out. So Airplane 2 is 40 years old this year. I'm also going to throw in a little bit of trivia. Please. 
Grease 2 came out that summer. <gasps> Grease 2 and Airplane <laughs> 2, the sequel, both wow. came out the summer of 1982. Mm. Both were, for reasons I have never been able to ascertain, written by the same man, Ken wow. Finkelman. Ken Finkelman actually directed Airplane 2, but he also wrote Grease 2. Both of those are Paramount pictures. So I'm saying they must have got him like a discount or something. <laughs> they must have got 20% off from Finkelman <laughs> that summer. That's so strange to me that the same guy wrote both those much maligned, but actually pretty good sequels. Wow. Both of which deserve a part three. Okay. I, I mean, I've never been a fan of Grease. I love Grease. But I have it in all my food. Yeah. Well, no, obviously that. But, um, but I've never been a fan of the film Grease. Grease 2, I Get appreciate, out. but I don't love... <laughs> But I know Cat Brown, formerly of this parish, is an enormous, yes. enormous Grease 2 fan, so she'd be very much on board for a Grease 3. There has been talk of it over the years, hasn't there? There, there was has talk been, of um, yeah. Them, yeah. them playing the parents of a new generation. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Not going to happen, though, is it? Uh, I, I agree with uh, Amon's The Raid. That's never going to happen yeah. either. Gareth Evans has outlined what The Raid 3 would have been. If you listen to our The Raid spoiler special that we did with him, uh, he goes into it in fairly... Well, great detail, actually, quite intricate detail about what the Raid 3 would never have been. I'm going to say Conan, Conan as well. There were the two Arnold great one? Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. Okay. Conan, well, one great Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan movie. <laughs> well, half a great Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Conan the Barbarian, uh, Conan the Destroyer. We never got King Conan. We never got it. It was, it's was it been promised to us many, many times over the years. We've never got it. Um, I'm also going to say Fright Night. To throw in a horror film. I uh, forgot there was a sequel. There is a sequel. Yeah. There is a sequel in which uh, Chris Sarandon's sister comes back and attacks William Ragsdale and uh, Roddy McDowell. And I had a soft spot for it when I was growing up. Although I suspect if I watched it now, it would be awful beyond belief. Uh, <laughs> but yes, Fright Night and Fright Night Part 2 deserve a Fright Night Part 3. Difficult to do, again, for obvious reasons mm. these days. And I thought of a different category for this, which is at movies it had a shocking third that deserve a do-over. Raimi Spider-Man. Raimi Spider-Man, Blade, Beverly Hills Cop. There's an, this could be a category on its own and perhaps it will be for a future installment. So, you know, so <laughs> get your thinking caps on for, for that one, folks. But I'm going to say one more. The one I'm going to suggest right now, and I'm partially suggesting it just to see the looks in your faces. Oh, boy. <laughs> I think Zack Snyder should get a third crack at Batman and Superman. No. I don't know about you guys. But <laughs> no! No, no, no. And let me think. Oh, no. Helen just stared oh, out the window just, for, a good, for a good 30 I seconds. Just, uh, Why not? Yeah, Why not? I think, I think my internet connection might go down any second. You might lose me forever. <laughs> Batman, Superman, mm -hmm. Justice League, his, his four hour cut of the Justice League. Stick another few hours on that one. Give him the sequel. Go on. I've got a great... Uh, here, I'm going to coin this. I'm coining this phrase. Restore the Snyder first. Okay. That's a phrase wow. I've just coined. Here's, here's the upside to doing that. The upside is they might shut up for a minute. <laughs> but I don't think they would because Restore the Snyderverse never just wanted one more from him. No, no. They wanted the whole tapestry. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, listen, there was enough about Justice League to make me want to see how the story pays off. Genuinely. Well, we still haven't done our spoilers, so you'll never know how I feel about that, despite <laughs> having watched it twice and taken 24 pages of notes. <laughs> But it's I'm not probably bitter. a good thing that we didn't do that for a special. <laughs> I feel like we're in a good place with our live action Batman and Superman right now because the Batman, for all uh, its imperfections, 
for me, did understand who Batman was at the core level. And Superman and Lois, which is a really good TV show, which I mm. highly encourage all Superman fans to check out, also understands that character on a deep core level. Correct. Um, Zack Snyder's Batman, Superman, Justice League films don't quite get that for my, for my money. I mean, I, I guess in fairness for what Chris is saying, the theory and some of the defense of his films has always been where well, he's getting them to that point. These are prequels. They're not there yet. Uh, or in Batman's case, he's getting back to that point. He's rediscovered his wah, wah, wah. I mean, you know, so there, that's the argument. I'm not saying I think that would have happened, but I guess Chris's argument is maybe if he got another film, he could actually be faithful to the characters. Well, no. I don't buy that because, like, you know, Batman and Batman Begins is in. Oh, God, year what one. have I done? And <laughs> Batman Begins, Batman is in year one. In The Batman, Batman is in year two. There's still a few things that both of those interpretations of Batman don't get character wise, but in terms of their core, their essence, they know who they are, they know why they're doing what they're doing. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you brought this on yourself, Chris Hewitt. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, Sicario, I'm going to throw another couple. Fuck it, okay. why not? Sicario uh, needs a third part, especially the way the Sicario 2 ended. Uh, and um, <laughs> Sicario 2. Yeah. 22 Jump Street. I know finishes with a meta gag about I, I, all yeah. the sequels. Those are all but... canon, though. So it's not really a third part so much as like a 50th part. Yeah, yeah. I did consider putting this on sort of my short list, but yeah, the, the end credits of that, which is still some of the. Probably my, it's, 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 an, it's incredible. That, that entire end credit sequence is incredible. So, uh, yeah. Apparently the script for the 21 Jump Street Men in Black crossover was actually good. I believe it, because nobody's going to green like that on the premise. It's too weird. So the yeah. script would have to be good. Yeah. And then they went with Men in Black International instead. They did. And it's and weird that-, that they're still making Men in Black films when the first one still hasn't turned a profit after all these years. <laughs> <laughs> It is wild, isn't it? Maybe they just neuralize the accounting team every now and again. <laughs> it's like, guys, we're we're swimming in cash. Great news! And they call up like Ed Solomon, they, you know, the, the the screenwriter who, if you don't know what Helen's referring to, Ed Solomon, the the writer of Men of Black, every year on Twitter posts his statement about Men of Black, saying that he uh, the the movie is yet to make a profit, so therefore he's not entitled to a share of the profits. <laughs> The movie apparently cost $5 million last quarter. <laughs> he was like, guys, stop building sets. If you were ever in a position to get points uh, on a movie, gross points, not net points, <laughs> don't wait for the, the bean counters to get their hands on it. Uh, we've talked about this enough. There's loads of other suggestions and that we haven't even got onto, as I say, trilogies that should have a do-over for their third part or movies that didn't even get a sequel like the nice guys and mm. the Lincoln lawyer and, and mm. films like that. But, uh, but anyway, Hey ho, we move on. Uh, if you want to have your question about out in the Emperor podcast, there is one game in town right now, which is Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt. You can slide into my DMS. You can reply to any of my tweets or you can wait for a panicked shout out every now and again. Shall we have a guest? Who do you want? Yes. Do you want, do you want Daisy Edgar Jones and Sebastian Stan? Or do you want Simon Farnaby? Edgar Jones and Stan. I stan Edgar Jones and Sebastian Stan. All right, so we'll have those. Dainty Edgar Jones and Sebastian Stan. You know them. They're attractive. They're in a film. Wait, Sebastian Stan's attractive? Why did no one tell me? (laughs) Hang on a second. 
I'm just going to Google it. <laughs> I wonder what happens if I type in Sebastian Stan attractive. <laughs> I, think, I think you won't get very many pictures from my Tonya. Bear with me. Yes. Uh, okay, the first thing that comes up is a Pinterest link. 39 hot pictures of Sebastian Stan <laughs> that will send chills up and then it stops. So I don't know. Where are I the chills going? I oh, don't God. know where the chills I've got all these chills and they're multiplying. I don't know where to put them. Uh, second link, why a supporting Marvel character has one of the internets and then it stops. <laughs> 15 reasons Sebastian Stan is the man of your dreams. That's on Hollywood.com. Buzzfeed.com gets to the heart of the matter. 21 times wow. Sebastian Stan was too damn hot. <laughs> so what? He just like needs air conditioning. Quora.com. Who is more handsome, Sebastian Stan or Chris Evans? <gasps> Throw Gene Kelly into the mix. We have Kelly. a real debate. <laughs> well, Helen? Um, uh, it, it depends. Are we talking cat beard? Uh, does he have the bucky arm? What's happening here? Do I you need, need the bucky arm? Is the bucky arm a deal sealer? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> What's he doing with the bucky? Anyway, let's move on. Let's move on. I have a question for him before we move on from this. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> What is the hotter MCU moment for you? Mm-hmm. Sebastian Stan's strut in The Winter Soldier. It's a good strut. Mm-hmm. Or Cap in Civil War uh, trying to get the helicopter. Oh. Uh, it's, it's actually Cap walking into the room with the beard. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. What about when he rips the log in Ooh, Age no, of that, Ultron? That definitely comes below the helicopter moment. The helicopter really? Moment. So yeah, the, the inside of Chris Evans getting the grips of this wood isn't, doesn't would, do things I would for like him. to see this top 10 this time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, will, I, will, uh, I will leave that to a friend of ours, Lamara, who, who will definitely have a very strong opinion. <laughs> I'm sure. All right. Now we've objectified Sebastian Stan and Chris Evans I know. Evans it's enough. disgraceful. Outrageous. Well, it's St. Patrick's Day, so naturally we're going to have someone who played an Irish person uh, on the podcast, uh, and that is Daisy Edgar-Jones, who of course was a star of Normal People. Not Irish, though, as I always knew, and and didn't just Google. Uh, Yes, so she was a star of Normal People, and now she is a star of Fresh, in which she stars alongside, I keep saying stars, Hmm. uh, in which she appears alongside Sebastian Stan, Fahrenheit, Homecoming, Seventeen. As a, he's a hot doctor. She's a hot, hot what is she? Hot she's single hot, in your area? Hot, I don't know. She's, yeah, <laughs> she, hot singles in your area are looking for Sebastian Sands to date. And things <laughs> don't go well. This is the thing. I was going to say, I was going to say this for when we actually get to the review section, but I might as well say it now. If you can... Go into Fresh knowing as little as possible. It is the best way to see this film. Uh, and then come back and check in with us afterwards because, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, yes. it's quite something. Go into Fresh, Fresh, if you can. Um, devoid of all knowledge about all things. Just try and wipe your mind. Get neuralized, just like the <laughs> Sony accounts department. And then see Fresh. Uh, anyway, might make the interview tricky. I haven't heard this interview yet, but Sylvie Butcher. Uh, was uh, lucky enough to talk to Daisy Edgar-Jones and Sebastian Stan a couple of weeks ago. And um, I have no idea what they talked about. Enjoy. <laughs> Hi, Daisy. Hi, Sebastian. How are you doing? Good. How are you? How are you? 
Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. Um, I got to watch um, Fresh over the weekend and I had an absolute blast with it. <laughs> so much fun, I really loved it. Um, and not giving anything away, but the film has a lot of surprises in it. What were both of your thoughts when you first read the script? I guess I guess how it was how it was going to really uh, end. I, I, there was there were a lot of surprises, I guess, for me as well, kind of because Steve seemingly was so awful in many scenes, and then he was so uh, pathetic in other ones <laughs> and childish in, 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 to me, especially those dance sequences. So it was. Uh, it was sort of an unusual character or a character we I hadn't seen in a, in a script in a while. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I looked I was reading it with fresh eyes, pardon the pun, but I, I hadn't <laughs> I, I didn't know much about it um, going into it. So it was a real sort of um, shock every time I came to, you know, every sort of new uh, scene or act within it is, is in, increasingly chaotic. So it was quite fun to read and not know what was coming. Yeah, of course. Um, and it's it's quite a dark film. It goes to some very dark places, but I found that it maintains this sense of real, like, pulpy fun throughout the whole thing. Um, and you both absolutely commit to your characters and to the storyline, but you also keep that sense of fun throughout. Um, how did you both manage to balance that tone throughout your performances? Was that tricky? Was that a challenge? Well, I think it was it was really I love that kind of dark humor. That's the films I enjoy watching most are ones that have that kind of um, yeah, use that tone to to say something um, kind of quite heavy. And I think Fresh does that so well. And I guess, you know, Sebastian, and I, we both have a similar sense of humor. So whenever we had scenes together, we were able to make each other laugh and we were allowed to improv a lot and be free with it, which was really helpful. And yeah, I think just scene to scene, trying to ground it in as much truth as we could in order to then earn those lighter, like kind of more, um, I guess, sort of outrageous moments. Um, yeah. So, yeah. How about for you, Sebastian? How did you find that? No, similarly, I think it was just it was um, it was always finding the balance with each of these scenes, because obviously the movie starts out in such a specific uh, way it, the I, I love the conversational sort of bantery part of it and, and how kind of uh, realistic and relatable that was. And then, mm -hmm. then it was sort of, it starts kind of taking that turn. And then we just, I think we wanted to make sure that um, all the beats were, were earned in a, in a way that kept you still in the same movie, even though things were shifting drastically. And um and and that was always uh, something that you know we were able to do with with the amount of collaboration that we had between all of us, you know the writer, the, Mimi, the director, the producer. So we were lucky in that regard. Yeah, and you mentioned Mimi, and this is her first feature film. Um, what was she like to work with as a director? You said there was improv. Was she quite? Um, did she allow a lot of improv? Was she quite collaborative in that sense? Yeah, she really was. I mean, she, you know, she really allowed us to be free in the scenes and, and you know, she, she's got a great sense of humor herself. So she was like, she would laugh along with us, which was really nice. And she allowed us to kind of um, take the scene and break it apart and play with it. Um, and I, and she also, she's incredibly visual. So she had such um, interesting ideas for how to film it. And I think the camera really is a character in the story. It's one I, I think is really cool the way it sort of starts in a very standard you know, filmmaking way. And then it starts to, it starts to become quite interesting with the angles and the use mm. of lens and, um, and focus and things like that. And I think that's really cool. And, um, 
and yeah, she also has great taste in music. So she would send us all playlists and things like that. So we had a real idea of um, the tone of the film. I think music really is helpful when, when you know, because ultimately you read a script and you have an idea of what the film's going to be, but you never know if, if, you sh- if that idea is shared. And I think music is a real good indicator of whether you are on the same page when it comes to uh, the feel of the film. Um, and so I knew she just, yeah, every song was a banger. So I knew she was, <laughs> she was cool and we were on the same page. Oh, amazing. What were some of the bangers? Can you remember any? I mean, there's Heads Will Roll in the trailer really got me. I was just very happy to hear that. It's such a great use of it. And the Blood Orange as well. Lots of Blood Orange. Two Blood Orange songs, which is cool. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that great dancing scene with you, Sebastian, as well. Um, Session, right. That's another one. And um, But the playlist that we had had all these great sort of... and, and, And Richard Marks, right? I mean, that's the... That's like the the one song that I remember kind of was born out of rehearsal because we were we were sort of trying to figure out what that moment was essentially and how intimate and kind of how it kind of all comes together. And again, do, do we earn that moment? And um, and I remember I was just always I'd made an 80s playlist and always was into that endless summer on, on repeat. <laughs> And then they just ended up in the movie, which was great. Um, and you mentioned before about um, the kind of um, banter and the sort of chemistry between you guys, especially when you have your, your very charming meet cute in the supermarket um, and on your day and, and even further into the film when, you know, these wild moments have happened. And you mentioned rehearsal as well. Is that how you kind of achieved that sort of natural sense of chemistry? Was there a lot of rehearsal beforehand? Or was that something that just came organically on set? We, we had rehearsal uh, as far back as December, and then we didn't start shooting until February. So we would, we would kind of get together and rehearse certain scenes, and, didn't, and, then, and then we would go back and, and have Zooms um, about the script as a whole. And, and it sort of just kept continuing through, through the, the movie as we were shooting, because there were things that we were just discovering along the way that, um, fortunately, again, we were able to, because of sort of open mindset that that everybody had about it and and then we would kind of rehearse on the weekends as well kind of Mm -hmm. of, um just trying things out and 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 seeing um because we only had two hours to tell the story or less right and and to really understand how they what's the whole arc of their entire chemistry yeah, it was a real magic. It was a really magic filming experience, really, because like, like like Sebastian said, we you know we would we would sort of spend weekends breaking down the scenes that were coming up that week and really playing with all like different ways of playing with them and and um and like I said before, we have a real shared sense of humor, and I think that's really important when it comes to um chemistry on screen because if you're allowed if you're able to make the other actor laugh in a moment of improv, mm-hmm. you know you're in it together, and I think we really have that, and um and so it's so magic to really um to be allowed to, to uh, play with those characters and, and bring our own little twists to them. And, um, you know, with the, with Lauren's great script, being able to kind of play with it and, and Mimi allowing us to, to do that was really special. Daisy, just coming to you for a second, you obviously blew everyone away as Marianne in Normal People um, a couple of years ago now, um, which has, I feel like has a very different kind of outlook on love and dating <laughs> than <laughs> Fresh, which is a little bit more sort of cynical, especially Noah at the beginning of the film. How did you approach kind of getting into Noah's head and where she is um, when we first meet her? 
Yeah, I mean, I would say that both both Marion and Noah are a bit miserable when it comes to love. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, but, but I think um, actually uh, for Noah, a big part of it was her voice, I, I, and same with Marianne. Um, you know, that was an Irish accent that I had not done before, and it really informed. And I, it was the first time I realised how important accent is for informing uh, the, the physicality, even of an of an actor of a mm. character. Um, and so, finding that sort of register of Noah's voice, and and also kind of how that that therefore informs the comedy too, because sort of British comedy is very sort of clipped and underneath and. I don't know, throw away. And then there's a large, yeah. a largeness to American humor that, that was really fun to sort of find um, or yeah, a sort of loudness to it in a way. Um, so I think accent was a big part of it for me. Um, mm -hmm. And really once I sort of got that locked, then it was just really seeing uh, who the character was then when I was with different actors. And so, because uh, we're, we're so different depending on who we're with. And I think Noah with Steve is very different from Noah with Molly and uh, finding yeah. that dynamic between Jojo and Sebastian was so much fun and sort of taking everything they were giving me to their, then play on and, and bring to Noah, if you know what I mean. Yeah, of course. Um, and Sebastian, Steve is just such an incredible character. He's so charming, but then obviously has quite a, quite a dark side. Um, what, was, what did your preparation look like for, for the role? Can you talk about any research that went into it? Yeah, it was, it was like I'd gone to this bookstore and, and gotten all these books on narcissism and multiple <laughs> personality disorder <laughs> and um and then watching these documentaries and following this this particular doctor dr dorothy lewis who kind of like interviewed a lot of those you know ted bundy and a lot of those sort of serial killers and just try trying to understand how um how 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 someone would get away with with that you know and 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 what they would learn how they would learn to manipulate you know um and and it's just it's sort of kind of terrifying and fascinating when you're peeling back those layers because again it always just goes back to certain things that have happened in childhood and and one of the things that this woman dorothy lewis was talking a lot about in this documentary crazy not insane is that i guess if you take um you know, violence or abuse, and um, there's a biological factor to it, and then one traumatic event. Like mm. technically, you could have a, a formula for for someone ending up in a really bad place. And mm. so it's just it was it was a weird kind of uh, yeah, it was like working on a term paper or something in terms of like <laughs> psychoanalysis or something. But but. Um, it, again, it's always a learning experience, and that's kind of how I looked at it. It's just more about sort of what can we learn from this, or what, what can we, what questions can we walk away with, and um, how often do people seem to be a certain way, and and we don't mm. know, and and what do we, what do we, what are we attracted to, and why, and 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 sort of, um, yeah, just kind of awareness is the is the goal always, I think, and, yeah. and I think we get so swept up in in the romantic idea so often because we want it to work and and you want it to and you have a movie in your mind sometimes that that just starts playing and and it overpowers the the reality sometimes and again this is a very extreme situation that we're talking yeah. about um but but i think there's layers there that we can all kind of pick from 
Of course. Um, and without getting into details, there's quite a lot of culinary content, should we put it, <laughs> um, in Fresh. Um, some amazing scenes around the dinner table. Were those tricky to film? I feel like food food scenes always seem really hard with continuity and, um, you know, what were you guys actually eating? Were you having to eat it all day? Can you tell us a little bit about what those scenes were like to film? How about pate? Yeah. <laughs> I think the, that was the worst of it because I'm just sitting in it, yeah, it's just quite a, a lot to eat, sort of a pound of pate really. Um, yeah. Oh. And also, like, because I felt like out of the two of us, I had to be the one that really was into it. <laughs> I, it wasn't just like one bite. Like every bite. Shoveling had to in. Feel like it was just heaven uh, <laughs> on earth. And by the end, I was like, I'm not good. Uh, <laughs> I'm not well. <laughs> I'm not well. <laughs> Okay, so that was Daisy Edgar Jones and Sebastian Stan. We will be talking about Fresh. Oh boy, will we be talking about Fresh uh, <laughs> later on in the show in the reviews section? It's a, a good film. I didn't. It sounded like I wasn't mm. playing as bad. It's not. It's a really good film. It's mm-hmm. just there's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of film. So let's talk about movie news. So last week we were talking about the news of Florence Pugh is maybe being cast in Dune Part Two, and we were talking about how Shifty Barry as he's now called, <laughs> that's his official name, Shifty Barry, uh, might play Fade Rautha in Dune Part 2. And literally the second we stopped recording the show, it was announced <laughs> that Elvis is going to play Fade Rautha. And that makes sense because we were talking about would they go for a musician to play Fade Rautha, who, if you don't know, is the character played by Sting in the giant nappy <laughs> in the David Lynch movie, uh, who fights... Uh, Paul Atreides, played of course then by Kyle MacLachlan, played now by Timmy Toomates, uh, Timothy Chalamet in case you, you're not <laughs> up to date with all the end jokes in this podcast uh, and they have gone for a musician in Elvis Presley, Elvis Aaron Presley, the king of rock and roll himself aka Austin Butler who plays him in the new Baz Luhrmann film, so yeah. what do we make about this? Well one thing is that I would I would be encouraged for the Elvis movie I feel like getting this role is probably a sign that they they've seen a cut of that and liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying you know that's the main takeaway, but that's that's part of it. I also think that um, it's interesting casting. He's a he's a weird dickhead of a of a character. Frankly, like he is thoroughly rotten. He is a Harkonnen to his bones. He's just slightly less grotesque looking than the rest of them. Um, so that's why, why kind is of, that. When his when the the Baron's in these big gloopy oil pools, and you have yeah. the the Bistro Ban who looks just like he's well, obviously he looks a bit like Dave Bautista because he is Dave Bautista, but he looks like you know he has never seen the sun, and he's you know just looks a bit pasty and angry. Mm. Well, I guess looks wise, he takes after his mother, who's one of the Bene Gesserit, because he is also the product of the Bene Gesserit breeding program. So you remember how in the film. I'm going to get nerdy for a second, so just oh, try and stick with me. I'm sorry. Do. So do you remember that Paul's mother, Jessica, had been told to bear a daughter to the Atreides? Yes. And then she, and then because she knew, she really loved Oscar Isaac, we all do, and she wanted to give him a son because he really wanted a son. Therefore, she disobeyed the rules and gave birth to a son instead, right? But that daughter was genetically destined to marry Fade Rautha. 
And it would be the child <gasps> of that what? union. It would be the child of that union who is actually supposed to be the sort of the Messiah. So Fade Rautha is also the product. He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But he is also the product of the Bene Gesserit um, breeding program that is meant to produce this genetic superhuman. And that's why he's less grotesque than the rest of his family. Also, by the way, his, Mm. his... Father or his uncle, the Baron, looks like he does because he was injected with a poison that basically destroyed his ability to metabolize stuff properly, which is why he is so grotesquely enormous. It's ah. actually a it's a it's a it's a poison. It's a result of a poison administered by Lady Jessica's mother. Anyway. Ah, okay. So there you go. There Sounds you go. like a lovely family. Oh yeah, lovely family. Their <laughs> get-togethers are are a delight. Uh, I am going to say because I'm sure people are shouting at the podcast device right now. Let in the film is Benny Gesserit uh, and not Gesserit. Uh, just to head of any Nabi Keita, Nabi Kaita situations that we might get here. Um, Benny Gesserit. That's exciting, <laughs> isn't it? That's good stuff. We're all happy about that. And right. uh, and he'll be played by Austin Butler. Of the Butlerian Jihad. Oh my god. I know. It's all coming up, dude. <laughs> Everything is coming up, nappies. This is <laughs> this is wild. Twenty-one times Austin Butler looked hot in a giant nappy. <laughs> it's gonna be the next Google search. Uh so that's exciting stuff. Uh mm. also there is some movement on a sequel I didn't think we'd get a lot of movement on, if I'm honest with you, which is if you want to go back to the question earlier on about yeah. franchises that only had two parts that need a third. Deadpool is one of those, and I thought that it wasn't going to happen. Deadpool 3 in the MCU, but it is. And Ryan Reynolds has looked at his buddy, Sean Levy, and gone, yes, please, you are my guy for the Wade Wilson project. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. They teamed up recently in the Adam project, and before that, Free Guy. Yeah, they clearly have a great working relationship, so I can see why Reynolds looked to his buddy to help him direct this. I think it'll be really interesting seeing a Deadpool movie in an MCU world. Um, and there's lots of stuff that you can do with that concept, given the character that Deadpool is. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of PG-13 jokes, for instance, mm. in this film. Yeah, I'm intrigued. I do kind of wonder if them hiring Sean Levy means that they are going softer on Deadpool 3 that it, you know he is generally a PG13 at most director he's very much got a, a background in kind of family films so you have to wonder if this is the way Deadpool's going don't you yeah i i i you look at his track record as a director and i don't think he's done anything in this in the r rated realm uh, having said that feige kevin feige has talked over the years about if they did a Deadpool 3 it would probably be R-rated and they'd probably find a way around that. Mm. And I I know I've seen some people say that this might be in some way a declawed Deadpool, but he started off in the comics, in comics where he couldn't swear and, Mm. and, and couldn't kill loads of bad guys in a really, really gory fashion. So... I think he's kind of returning him to his roots a little bit. And if you have him if you have him within the confines of a PG thirteen movie Commenting on that. Commenting exactly on that. And that could right. be quite funny, right? Yeah. yeah. No, I I I'm absolutely not saying that couldn't be funny. Yeah. I'm just wondering. That's all. And and, yeah. and I also think what they might do is some kind of compromise where it is R rated, but it's essentially R rated for language rather than maybe violence and certainly rather than sex. And what do you think about this? You excited about it, potentially? 
Yeah, I, I'm more intrigued and excited about it at this point. Um, I really like Deadpool. Deadpool 2, I had a few issues with. Um, but Deadpool 3, I think it could be really interesting. I think it really could be really fun. Again, playing in this sandbox now, having access to all the characters they now do, I think will make it really interesting. As for the R rating of it all, I really think because they're in a unique position where they can comment on everything, having it be PG-13 might actually be beneficial in some ways to this film. It's not. It doesn't need to be R-rated in the same way that a Blade movie for me does need to be R-rated, given everything that's probably going to happen in a film like that. So yeah, I think I think it could work. I think it could work, and I hope that they make it... I say make it sufficiently unique that, you know, Ryan Reynolds has to sort of stretch himself a little bit, but Deadpool and Ryan Reynolds, they're so wedded together, and he has been playing a version of that in so many of his you know, films that I'm not sure sort of how different it will end up being, but I'm hoping they'll throw in some stuff that we don't expect. So it's uh, Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick who are returning to write the script. I don't know how involved Ryan Reynolds or how credited Ryan Reynolds would be with the script this time. Obviously, he co-wrote Deadpool 2 uh, with those guys. Um, and we don't have a time frame either. But uh, I will say that if this goes ahead, mutants confirmed in the MCU. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of Marvel stuff, there was a Marvel trailer this week. Literally and figuratively, because <laughs> it was the debut of the trailer for Miss Marvel, which is the next MCU Disney Plus show that's going to be coming along after Moon Knight. Moon Knight will debut at the end of March, run for about six weeks or so. And then in June, we're going to get Miss Marvel, which apparently will be debuting or will be playing on Wednesdays. So Ooh. for a few weeks, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Miss Marvel are going to run together at the same time. So thanks a fucking bunch. Oh dear. There, go, there, goes, there goes my Wednesday night. And I do we have to record one spoiler special, and then I have to edit that. Now I have to record and edit two spoiler specials for the next day. So thanks a bunch, Kevin. Thanks a bunch, Disney, if that is your real name. Oh, Unbelievable. Do you, think, do you think that will hold? Do you think... I, I, I have a feeling they're going to change that up before... I th I feel like they've thought it through, you know, for the first trailer. I mean, if it was if we were a year out or something, I would I would think it might not hold. But surely, eighth of June. So that's was that that's listen. This is what I was told. I was told mm, that yeah. they were both on Wednesdays. So the eighth of June is that definitely a Wednesday, uh, or am I being sold a pup? No, I think uh, it is because no, I'm going to is. a wedding on the on the eleventh. Yep. It's a Wednesday. It's, it's a Wednesday. It's a Wednesday. So unless Obi-Wan Kenobi is a lot shorter than we had anticipated, <laughs> uh, then they're going to be overlapping for a little bit. But the important not to, not thing is, it looks great. No, I'm furious, Helen. We've got to focus <laughs> no, on the no, fury. No, we don't have to focus on your fury. We can focus on the fact that it looks really good fun. This is a character who I absolutely love. I think she is... Um, she's funny. She's smart. She's uh, weird. Uh, she's, who is she? Who is she? She is Kamala Khan. She is uh, a nerdy teen who writes fan fiction about the Avengers and then finds herself burdened with superpowers. Now, this is an interesting point in this in this trailer. Mm -hmm. In the comics, she gets her superpowers from the Terrigen Mist. Uh, as you'll all remember, it's the same <laughs> thing that empowers the Inhumans. One of Marvel's rare flops on its face. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they've kind of been written out of history and it seems like she's going to have some kind of cosmic origin to her powers here, which will give her, by the looks of things, 
and we can't always trust Marvel trailers, slightly different powers to the ones she has in the comic. Now, there does still seem to be some distortion. Basically, in the comics, yes, she can technically shapeshift, but she pretty much never does. What she mostly does is make parts of her body bigger or smaller uh, to, you know, punch people with a fist the size of a car or step over buildings and that kind of thing. Um, it, it looks like she has kind of cosmic energy-based powers in this, but we will obviously see if that is the case uh, when it comes out, because I, I don't think we can entirely trust the trailer on anything like that. Yeah. I, I really uh, like the look of this trailer. Mm. Very, very fun. The spirit of the comics is very much, very much uh, yeah. in it. And, you know, me and Helen, we've, we've said this, I think, a few times, but if you haven't read the Miss Marvel comics, Go and do that immediately. They are very, very good. Um, and yeah, I, I love that she's being introduced to this world. I'm very intrigued by the fact that we're getting it this early purely because Miss Marvel has not been around that long and she hasn't been around really. <laughs> she's been around in a very, very small way in terms of present day. Like the Miss Marvel, the, the Captain Marvel film that we saw was in the 90s where, you know, Kamala Khan, you know, wouldn't have known that she wouldn't, she wouldn't have existed. So I'm very intrigued to see how the MCU is going to explain Kamala Khan's love of Captain Marvel, given that we've seen so little of her uh, at present time. But I, I, well, okay. So presumably, so she, she turned up during the blip. She could have been around for most of Kamala Khan's adolescence, all of her adolescence, part of the end of her childhood. If she's like 15. Captain Marvel's been around for potentially five years, given to, you know, coming and going maybe, but she she was a, a person that they knew existed potentially during that time. We don't know what she did during the blip. We know she was off-world mm. for at least parts of it, but we don't know she was off-world for the whole thing. Mm. So it is that is possible, I think. There are glimpses in the trailer of her attending like expos and stuff, and you can see like, you know, because of Captain Marvel that she's looking up yeah. to a lot of it. So... Yeah, I hope Captain Marvel is getting a slice of the uh, the money from this merchandising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that hang up thingy looked amazing. It looked really cool. It feels to me like someone's exploiting her. Maybe, yeah, maybe the so. Sony Pictures Accounts Department. <laughs> <laughs> I also allegedly th- allegedly. <laughs> I, I also think that um, you know we're not seeing the certainly the full story here, but but mm. you know I think this is being quite coy with with some of the stuff that could go into this movie. So I, I would not be surprised if there were other Marvel characters turning up at some point, oh, but there's yes. no hint of any of that in this. Uh, but we're excited about this. So Iman Falani is making her debut in everything uh, as Kamala, Ka- Kamala or Kamala? Kamala. Yeah. Confusingly, um, Kamala Harris says it's Kamala. Okay. I think, but it, she says in the trailer, Kamala. Okay. I'm not making, she actually corrects up. people in the she trailer, doesn't she? She actually corrects people yeah. in the trailer. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, looking very much forward to Miss Marvel. Uh, so I guess that means the one after that is She-Hulk. By process of elimination, the one that is left this year will be She-Hulk. Um, wow. So exciting stuff. Yeah. Exciting stuff. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? Yes, the BAFTAs were on Sunday. Um, the biggest winner in numbers and really morally was, was Rebel Dune. Wilson. Uh, It was not. It was not Rebel Wilson, I'm afraid. Now, uh, it was Dune, which took home, I think, five um, wins, uh, best score, cinematography, production design, sound, and special visual effects, all of those 
very well earned, I think. Um, then The Power of the Dog uh, took Best Film and Director, surprising, I think, no one at this point. And mm-hmm. West Side Story took Casting and also Best Supporting Actress for Ariana DeBose. Yes. Um, so that was good stuff. Uh, Coda won Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Supporting Actor for Troy Kotzer. Belfast took Outstanding British Film, which I feel like was going to be controversial in the U- in, in Northern Ireland, but hasn't been so far, so well done. Mm-hmm. Um, and James Samuel took Outstanding Debut for The Harder They Fall, which is good. And Reisuki Hamaguchi is Drive My Car was Best Film, not in the English language, um, despite being nominated for like 16 different things. So I was... Surprised it only took that, but I suppose that's something. And Will Smith got a BAFTA. His first nomination, which stunned me. I mean, he, at least he's got one to Denzel's mm. none, which is... Ugh. But um, yeah, uh, I think this is Will Smith's year. Yeah, yeah I'm beginning to think so Which too. is good because he hasn't been paid for Men in Black. So. <laughs> Presumably not. Still um, winning. Yeah. I think, I think he has given... Because he's been in the Oscar mix twice before with The Pursuit of Happiness and Ali. I think both of those performances are better than his King Richard performance, but his King Richard performance is really, really good. Mm. Uh, so yeah, um, I'm happy, happy for him. Yeah, I'm also really happy for Joanna Scanlon, uh, mm. of course, on this podcast just a few weeks ago, and she mm-hmm. won for After Love, and it is so, so well deserved. She got fewer mm-hmm. front pages than Lady Gaga would have done if she'd won, mm-hmm. but I, th- I feel like anybody who's seen both those films would find it very hard to argue with that result. It is phenomenally well deserved, and I'm really, really pleased for her. Interesting, isn't it, that uh, Questlove... One mm. a BAFTA, mm-hmm. Joanna Scanlon won a BAFTA, Kenneth Branagh won a BAFTA, Ariana DeBose won a BAFTA. What do these people have in common? They were all recently on the Empire podcast. Oh my God, are just, we going to win BAFTAs? I think we are. The, oh I think my we're, God. I think we're the key. Can I just say, uh, Questlove was wearing Crocs. No, <laughs> take his BAFTA off him. I swear take to you. Take his BAFTA off him. He was him. wearing like cool Crocs, like there is you know, no such black thing. with splatters. But there is no such thing. Now he was wearing, and do you know what? why I will allow him to do this? He was at the DGAs on Saturday night. He flew to London, attended the BAFTAs, and then I believe went to Brick Lane and got some bagels at a shop that Amy Winehouse introduced <laughs> him to. And then he was getting straight back on another plane to fly to LA to be in the band on The Tonight Show as usual on Monday night. Wow. That's that impressive. guy works hard. He is allowed to wear Crocs. Yeah. No one is allowed to wear Crocs <laughs> under any circumstances. Uh, chefs wear Crocs quite a lot. No. Vets wear, cro- wear Crocs as well. Because well, they're washable. Service. Yeah. Um, oh, you mean oh, okay, as, yeah. uh, people who stick their fingers up animals' bums. Uh, speaking of animals' bums, Puss in Boots 2 uh, has a trailer out this week. Oh, boy. Uh, and... <laughs> I thought it looked like a ton of fun. It's called Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. And the conceit of this is kind of genius. Uh, It's that Puss in Boots gets killed at the beginning of the film. (laughs) And it is revealed. Kids film. Lovely. (laughs) He gets flattened by a giant bell. Stop it. And and it is revealed that he has actually used up all but one of his nine lives. Mm. Uh, and so it's about him trying, going on an adventure, presumably, and learning the value of life uh, along the way. Uh, what's interesting about this is that they seem to have slightly switched up the animation style mm-hmm. for, for this movie. It, it looks much more hand-drawn in a weird way. Mm. Um, and it's very, very funny as well, the trailer. So, yes. Meow. Yeah. Saucer of milk, table me. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah. I co-sign all of that. Uh, I've always loved uh, that character. 
the way he bounced off uh, Eddie Murphy's donkey <laughs> in the Shrek movies was particularly funny. Literally uh, and figuratively. <laughs> so, so yeah, all for another one of his solo efforts. And as you say, by all chance, it looks like a lot of fun. Some sad news. William Hurt, the Oscar-winning star of Kiss of the Spider-Woman and films like Body Heat and Smoke and The Big Chill and Steven Spielberg's original choice by Alan Grant in Jurassic Park. Uh, and of course, General Thunderbolt Ross in some MCU movies uh, passed away this week uh, from, after a, a battle with cancer. He was just 71. And uh, two things. We should acknowledge the fact that he was an amazing actor and uh, obviously won an Oscar and was, uh, you know, a, a character actor in The Lady Man's Body and yeah. and. Uh, contributed some incredible, incredible work and will be sadly missed. The other thing, of course, and I wasn't aware of this, is that after he died, uh, not that it came to light because these accusations were made a couple of years ago, but Marley Matlin, who was the co-star of Children of a Lesser God, who won an Oscar for her role in that work and worked alongside William Hurt in that film, uh, they were together for about two or three years around the time of the filming of that movie. And she published a, a memoir a couple of years ago in which she accused William Hurt of abuse in that relationship, uh, sexual abuse, physical assaults. And we should acknowledge that as well when we're discussing him. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's very hard to do because, you know, when certainly for me, when all I knew about him was what I saw on screen, I was a, a very, very big fan. I think his, his appearance in A History of Violence is one of the all-time oh. great cameos. It's just an incredible, incredible, you know, just changes that film up a gear in the last act in a way that you, you rarely see done that well. Uh, and um, he got an Oscar nomination for that. He was Oscar nominated four times Broadcast news, he's, he's phenomenal in broadcast news. Um, I love him in AI. I think he's great in AI, which I am the fan of. I am I am the one. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, we, we do have to acknowledge, you know, as a person, there, there is this huge caveat hanging over his his character and his history. And uh, we don't want to, you know, ignore that because we also mm. love Marley Matlin, if we have any sense. Joey Lucas mm. from The West Wing, my God. So, um, so yeah, so, but, but at the same time, you know, it, there's no question he was a, a big, big Hollywood star, a big Hollywood actor, a, a huge acting talent, and we have to acknowledge that at the same time. William Hurt, who passed away at the age of 71. One last thing to cover in this week's news section, and that is the fact that it is New Empire Day. Hooray! Woo! It is not just St. Patrick's birthday, I believe that's what it is uh, today. <laughs> uh, happy birthday, St. Patrick. Uh, it is also the release of the brand new issue of Empire Magazine. It's not just any old issue, folks. It's issue 400 of Empire what, Magazine. What? Can you imagine such a thing? That's right. The podcast beat the magazine to 400 <laughs> and 500. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> take that print. Uh, <laughs> actually, we've had a thousand episodes. <laughs> oh, God. Issue 400 of the magazine. So it's, it's um, quite aptly Sam Raimi focused. Quite rightly so. Because Sam Raimi is the director of Empire's Lifetime. Is and outside Empire's Lifetime, he? he's just a, he, well. He's, he's the goat. great. Look, I, I like, I love him. But, he's the know. goat. He is my beloved possessed goat boy, Sam Raimi, and his new movie is a little film I like to call. Let me just look this up: Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Sounds like a really cool indie. Mm. Who would have written <laughs> such a story, though, Chris? Who would have talked to Sam Raimi and all his cast for that? Well, as you as you know, <laughs> Helen, uh, I am a generous man, mm -hmm. and. When the chance to interview Sam Raimi about a Marvel movie comes up, I go, you know what? Anyone else can take it. Yeah. <laughs> and if you take it, I will hunt you down. 
that's how I remember and the I conversation. Will, yeah. I will haunt you. Yeah. I will haunt you. <laughs> uh, so, yes, I wrote the cover feature this month for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. I talked to Benelin Cumberbund. Uh, I talked to Elizabeth Olsen. I talked to Kevin Feige. I talked to Michael Waldron, the writer. I talked to Benedict Wong. I talked to Chiwetel Ejiofor. I talked to Rachel McAdams. I talked to the film's producer, Richie Palmer. But all of those paled into insignificance next to the man, Sam Raimi, because uh, I spoke to him as well. And he was on good form. And it was <laughs> great. And then I wrote about it. And then, I had, then my first draft came in and it was sent back to me because apparently you just can't write Sam motherfucking Raimi <laughs> is here to school all you fools and then repeat that 3,000 times. Mm, that's weird. But that's not all inside this issue. Yes, we preview Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Yes, hopefully we will. you will know more about that film after reading the feature than you did before reading the feature. <laughs> that is my goal. Uh, it's not always compatible with interviews <laughs> in this realm, but I, I give it a good, a damn good go. Uh, so there we go. Dr. Strange, the multiverse of madness. We also, because we're 400 issues old, we did a big old thing called things we've learned, 400 things we've learned in which we delve back into the archives, into our brain spaces and uh, bring you 400 things that we, we know now that we didn't know when mm -hmm. we started. Empire Magazine all those years ago in 1989. We are, we also speak to Alexander Skarsgård, Anya Taylor-Joy, Ethan Hawke, Klesh Bang and Willem Dafoe and Robert Eggers and get the lowdown on the new movie The Northman. Uh, and we speak to Michelle Yeoh and the Daniels about everything, everywhere, all at once, a.k.a. Michelle Yeoh in the Multiverse of Madness, mm. uh, which mm -hmm. I haven't seen, but I hear is astonishing. I cannot uh, wait. Mm -hmm. Yes, I cannot wait either. Uh, we pay a sad and reluctant farewell to the great Ivan Reitman. We talked to some of the people who worked with him and who were inspired by him uh, throughout his career, like Kamel Nanjiani and Lorda Miller and Paul Feig and Todd Phillips. They all talked to us about what Ivan Reitman meant to them. Jeff Bridges is this month's God Among Us, and rightly so. In my section, the best section, review... Uh, Chloe Shao talks about Eternals. David Kep talks about how you create a great character. We rank the Nicolas Cage movies. That is the live show mm -hmm. uh, we did at episode 500. That will be going up at some point as a podcast. Um, Ed Numair, the writer of Robocop, talks through the best lines from Robocop. I'd buy that for a dollar. Uh, and the Take 20 section has new images from Jurassic World Dominion. It talks Scream 6 with Matt Bettinelli open and Tyler Gillette. We get Jordan Peele talking about Nope. Uh, Rachel Segler's in there as well. My fave. Yeah, Peter Capaldi is the pint of milk. Uh, we review loads of movies in On Screen. It's all very, very exciting. But again, all of that pales into <laughs> insignificance <laughs> next to the fact that Sam motherfucking Raimi is in this issue. And for that alone, that mm. makes it a must-buy. It's available right now <laughs> in all good news agents, all evil news agents, all digital news agents, in this or any other multiverse <laughs> you care to mention. Pay my wages, you absolute Chris, motherfuckers. No. no, we've talked about this. I think that's the hard sell done. Okay. What do you think would be some of the minute differences in Empire Magazine from multiverse to multiverse? 
<laughs> that is a very, very good question, and perhaps one we should answer uh, another time. Uh, I'll tell you one th- one thing though: in none of those multiverses are any of you getting close to Sam Raimi. Yeah. <laughs> he is mine. He is mine. I will rugby tackle you into the into the infinity verse. <laughs> uh, but yes, that is a good question. Perhaps one we'll tackle another time. Anyway, it's on sale right now. Go and buy it. It's it's amazing. Uh, should we have our final guest? Let's do it. Let's, Let's have our final it. guest. And our final guest is the wonderful Simon Farnaby, uh, incredible actor, of course, and the likes of Horrible Histories in Yonderland and Ghosts, oh, the wonderful yeah. ghosts on BBC. Uh, Barry, the security guard in the Paddington films, of course. Uh, uh, just an amazingly funny man. And over the last few years, he has blossomed as a writer of the screenplays, uh, also contributing to the likes of co-writing the likes of Paddington 2, the forthcoming Wonka. Uh, I believe he's also written a script for Robert Zemeckis' Pinocchio. So things are going well for Simon Farnaby. And his latest movie is out this week. It is a golf movie. It's called The Phantom of the Open. It is adapted by Simon Farnaby from a book he co-wrote with the brilliant sports journalist Scott Murray a few years ago. And it tells the true tale of Morris Flitcroft, played by Sir Mark Rylance in this film. And uh, Morris Flitcroft was a one-off. He was a guy who was uh, who tilted quixotically at windmills, shall we say, <laughs> and decided to enter the British Open, the the golf major that takes place over here in 1976, despite the fact that he didn't really know one end of golf club from the other. And uh, he rubbed a few establishment noses up the wrong way in doing so. I spoke to Simon Farnaby earlier on this week, and we had, as usual, a good old giggle. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the writer of The Phantom of the Open, Simon Farnaby. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm, I'm very well, thank you very much. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm basking in all the glory. No, uh, I'm so good to speak to you again, Chris. You, you always a great supporter of, of ours through Mindhorn and all, all the great tiny independent films. Uh, and some of the studio films, but this yeah. is this is this we're in an indie version now, aren't we? Yeah, you're. You're. Does this mean you approach things differently, Simon? Do you? Does yeah, your butler take you know, the day off? You know, studio films. I don't swear, and um, <laughs> you know, I'm much more well behaved and mannered. And these ones, I don't give a shit. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, whatever. Rock and roll, fuck it. Yeah, <laughs> it's an indie film, man. Yeah, yeah. Because I noticed the, the lack of swearing when I interviewed you for Paddington too. It was uh, it was most disappointing. Very well behaved. Well, you know, it's a family thing. It is a family thing. Mind you, there's only one swear word in the Phantom of the Open. There's one f word. That's true. That's true. It's, it's not like it's not like you've got Mark Rylance effing and jeffing all over the place. Were you tempted to yeah. though? Were you tempted to like just drop f bombs left, right, and center? There was a lot more swearing and and violence in the film. <laughs> in some of the early drafts. <laughs> but we'll probably get to that <laughs> at some point. We'll get into that. We will get into that. Uh, so you, you're in the middle of, you're at the tail end, rather, of a very long day of press. Yeah, I've done, I've done a lot of talking um, about the film, which I, which I love. It's good, that, it's good that I like it. Okay, so which question do you not want me to ask? Um... What are you absolutely sick of? Well, I'll be honest. I'm not. I, I really aren't sick of any any of it, to be honest. Because obviously, the the bit that bores me, I suppose, 
Uh, seems though it's you. Well, it doesn't because it's such an obvious question. Like, why? How did you find this story? Because it's not a story that that um, anybody knows. It's not like like you wouldn't ask Eddie the Eagle. I don't know who wrote Eddie the Eagle, but you go, <laughs> how do you find this story? And he goes, well, I saw it on the TV, like everybody else, because uh, <laughs> it is an unusual story. And um, so, so, so I, I, um. But it's not, the question isn't boring. It's I sort of bore myself because it's quite, there's nothing that funny about it. I did learn about him. I was a junior. I was, I was a golfer as a child. My dad was a greenkeeper. So, so that is why I love golf. Mm. And it's a strange thing. People are always quite surprised that when I go, I love golf, especially like my wife went, why do you play golf? What are you? I thought you were like quite arty and sort of creative. And you play this sport that is, you know, played by morons and sort of <laughs> and sort of businessmen, you know, everyone yeah. associates and Donald Trump. Yeah. And I go, well, that's not golf. That's not what I know as golf. And and I think actually I've talked my way around into an interesting way into the, to the this. Honestly, this is my new technique. Well, you have. You've done it. I haven't asked a thing. I'm just sitting here. <laughs> but it is. That is why, actually, I love this, is because I do, I do. It's not a film about golf, but it has a big background in golf. And I love golf. And it gets a bad press for very good reasons. But at its heart, golf is a great game. And Morris, he was a crane driver from Barrow, fell in love with this game that I love. Mm. But he was from the wrong side of the tracks, uh, which I was as well, because my dad was a greenkeeper, so we got looked down upon. We were like the, uh, the great unwashed, you know. So I always wondered, like, I, I would sort of be playing golf and someone, someone had come up to me, you know, the president of the club, and go, tuck your shirt in, you oik. <laughs> you know, why are you wearing trainers, you fool? Where's your spikes? <laughs> and, uh, and I'd go, what have I done wrong? I just love golf. Yeah. You know, like, take your hat off when I'm talking to you. Replace that like divot. That. Yeah, it was like all the time I lived in terror of being told off. You know, my dad would be going, my dad would go, so-and-so says you, 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 you answered back to him today and you, and you didn't repair your divots. And I go, bye, yeah. Anyway, so, so Morris really is that sort of figure that that's why I bonded with him, I suppose, hearing about him, was that he loved golf. But golf didn't love him. You you love golf, but you're also a writer. They're both pursuits that test your psyche on a on a daily basis. So I haven't played golf in a long, long time. But every round of golf is different. And one day you can you can step onto the course and you could be absolutely gangbusters. You can go gangbusters. The next day you can step onto the course and you could be hooking and slicing and you can't hit the green for love nor money. And writing is a bit like that. As well, is that what you've you found that sometimes you can have good days, you can have bad days, you can have days when you're like, I don't know what words are anymore. Yeah, that's I've never thought of it like that before, but yeah, I think that is true, and I think it's the appeal of sort of golf, and maybe that's the appeal of writing. Yeah, like every every course is different, so there's there's hundreds of thousands of courses you know in the world you can play on, and they're all different. I suppose that's different to like a football pitch or a mm. tennis court. Um, and as well, golf has a stationary ball. I don't know where this fits into the writing analogy, but <laughs> we'll make it work. We'll make it work. <laughs> <laughs> we'll think of something. Um, so that's what he's talking about. And the psychological aspect is you can do it on your own. You know, you can, um, 
play it on your own. So you can play the course, you know, um, and it's a stationary ball. So it's up to you when you hit the ball. Like, like you can't play football on your own, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly not to any competitive <laughs> degree. <laughs> um, I've tried. Uh, and I suppose, um, I, I know what it is. Like, football's more like comedy. Like, comedy, like sketch writing and performing is a bit like football. It has an improvisatory feel. Whereas golf's probably more like screenwriting, sort of long form, you know. You have this station. It's up to you. You've got a stationary ball. No one's passing to you. No one's throwing you things. You've just got to do it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> because you're reacting, right? In tennis, you react to your opponent. And, and that's why... You know, they're very responsive and reactive and they're improvising. Whereas golf, it's just you and the ball. Mm -hmm. And, and you've got all your demons in your head going, you can't do this. <laughs> you know, you're going to chunk it in through that window of the clubhouse, which I have done a few times. Oh, have you? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, 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 I've been through windows of houses and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Morris used to, like, he was, in the film, he actually had to tone down how many times the police, like we have one big police chase, which and people ask me, they go, that didn't happen. Morris got arrested countless times and was chased, was shot at, was, was, <laughs> I mean, I mean, we had to tone it down for the film. People wouldn't believe it. Um, cause he was playing, he was, cause he wasn't allowed to play on the golf course. Well, I mean, he couldn't afford to play. Um, and he would play on school fields. You get kicked off by the head, you know, the headmaster or whatever, and, and they'd call the police eventually. Uh, cricket pitches, he got shot at by a, you know, the the groundskeeper. Mm -hmm. um, he was always in the back of a police van. <laughs> always ended up always in a fight somewhere. <laughs> That's why I said the violence. We get to the violence. And Mark, when he read the script, he went, "There's too. There's a bit too much fighting in this." It was like he was always in fights. But um, <laughs> so there we are. We've got the uh, we've got the twelve A version. Maybe maybe there'll be a sort of uh, you know yeah. The full Mad Max version at some point. <laughs> Morris Flickcroft, Fury Road. I would Fury Road, yeah. <laughs> I'd yeah. love to see that. So I um, see so you've got you've got the swearing, you've got the F bomb, you've got the violence. Do we have do we have the sex, Simon? Is there is there room for, for a lot of bunker play, shall we say? You know <laughs> You know, funnily enough, um uh in in this this film's been through so many versions. Yeah. Um, Morris and his wife, Jean, really, it's a sort of love story and, and, and they have the sweetest sort of relationship, you know, in, in real life, they really did. And they really loved each other and they adored each other. Mm. And one way we did a writer's room and, and they went, what if they were always like, you know, the twins, the sons were always having to listen to them shagging in the other room because <laughs> they were so in love. And it was a really funny idea, and it was in the script for a while, like just because we thought they were so uniquely in love and, and, and were to the dying day. Right. And I thought, what a really funny way of – like never show it, but you can hear them and the twins are always rolling their eyes. <laughs> so that aspect was distilled into one scene where uh, Gene says goodbye to Morris to, when he goes to have his – to do his round at the, the Open, the first round. Yeah. And they just start kissing on the doorstep and yeah. don't stop. And the, and the twins go, oh, my God. And they're really sort of, wah, wah, wah. 
And so that distilled into that one moment. So there you are. It's there. It's there. It's all there. If you want to look for it, you know, read between the lines, the subtext of this film is they're always at it. Uh, <laughs> whenever they're not on screen, they're rutting uh, like like wild stags. Uh, but all of this, the fact that you mentioned a writer's room there is, is really interesting because that was an approach that was employed on the Paddington movies as well, wasn't it? That the at various points, other writers would come in and and, yeah. and throw things around. What what is it about that approach? Because it's a very TV approach. What is it about the approach that works in 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 the movies that you've worked? On? Um, it just really helps sort of loosen things up a bit. Um, and and just think of they just think of jokes. Yeah, and actually, we use the same, or I used to sort of stole the the everyone from the Paddington room. <laughs> Not that they all just stay in the Pennington room, but yeah, we had Je- Foster and Lamont and, and Alice Lowe and um, um, uh, who we got Joel Morris and 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 Jay- and like uh, it was Jason Hazley and mm-hmm. and um, they read the script before the writers' room and then they come in and then they you usually spend about two hours where they go yeah all these structures all wrong and then once that's out of the way and and you know. We, and and you've, get, you've, you've dealt with punishment. They haven't got a clue what they're talking about. <laughs> Once that's done, and then we get down to the business of, no, um, that's sometimes very helpful, but usually it's sort of punching up and thinking of jokes. And, and actually a lot of the twin stuff in the film came from that writer's room, I seem to remember, because they went, what if they were like disco dancing on the greens, you know, and like that was part of the, <laughs> that was part of the, you know, doing the, that thing, there's a nice bit where the commentator's going, I, I believe that's called a caterpillar, that move there. And one of the, t- the, the twins are doing their dancing on the green at the end of the, the one, two, one. And uh, that, that's called the moonwalk, that move. And I haven't seen that before, not on a golf course anyway. <laughs> um, that was writer's room, I think. And that's the sort of thing you ju- it's quite hard to come up with on your own, back to that playing on your own thing. Well, because that's that's one of the things that fascinates me about about that and about the way your career has gone over the last few years. Because obviously, you're happy working in a group, you know, you know, working on on Ghosts and Yonderland. I'm, I'm working with Paul King on the Paddington movies, but now you seem to be working on your own quite a lot as well. So, which which do you prefer? I like it all, really. You have to mix it up. I think that's that's the thing. I'm quite happy to be on my own, and I, and I wrote some children's books on on, on my own mm. as well, which was nice because then. Then you don't need anyone. Then, then you're the you're the costume designer and the set designer and everything because you're you you're building a film in people's minds by them reading your book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's great. I'm lucky enough to be able to mix it up. You know, I I worked with Paul. You know, we had a long run on uh, Wonka. You know, we yeah. just we wrote Wonka um, last year and very quickly that went into production and. Paul's probably exhausted now. I think he's got a few days left. Um, and then I'm lucky enough to go on to Ghost and sort of play with those guys. And and um, so yeah, I suppose it's all it's all good, really. Um, is a very boring answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> but but with this one, you're adapting yourself. I mean, you co-wrote the book with Scott Murray, who's an, if anyone yeah. has has never read Scott Murray stuff, he's an amazing uh, sports journalist, uh, really really funny guy. Uh, but on this one, you you adapted you adapted it yourself. Uh, so what was that process like? It was really having because the, the genesis. I, I wrote a screenplay first when I hadn't got a clue what I was doing, 
in 2009. I mean, really, that was a Flickcroftian exercise because I had no right to write a screenplay. <laughs> you know, it was like Morris playing golf. Um, and and then and then uh, it didn't get anywhere, obviously, because it was bad. And then so so did the book, and then wrote Mindhorn with Julian, and then did Pannison Two with Paul, which were both massive sort of learning curves, you know, and actually really learned how to write a screenplay, and you know, um, as best as one can. And so then coming back to it and, and sitting down just myself, I went, okay, so I've done this with Julian, I've done that with Paul, and, and, and I've seen what sort of generally works and what doesn't. And, um, and that was it. It was just really, I, I often have Paul in my head saying, um, that is a terrible idea. What are you doing? <laughs> I can hear him because we're so used to. Genuinely, I have... Him going, what are you thinking about, buddy? What are you doing? That's a wrong move. And I go, okay. <laughs> or, or I'll hear Julian doing you know, like it like a joke or something. So, <laughs> so really working with other people, I just hear their voices criticizing me <laughs> when I'm on my own. And that, that makes me write a better screenplay. <laughs> but it is, that's, that is what happens. I go, Paul wouldn't have this happen here. And, and then it slowly just gets better. <laughs> we all need that critical voice. <laughs> we all need the ghost of Paul King just appearing on our, on our yeah. shoulders. That's what we need. Absolutely lambasting our every move. <laughs> well, Simon, I've got to let you go because I know you've got to run to a, to a Q&A. Um, very last thing, really, real quick. Uh, yeah. When's your next round of golf? Do you have something lined up? Well, we're playing a, um, we're having a Flickcroft golf day. On Thursday at, at the Grove in um, in Watford, which is a really lovely course that I haven't played before, and I don't know what they've got in store. I know that there's Flickcroft tournaments around the world, and they're usually like the worst score wins. It's a unique sort of tournament, which is great, and in the spirit of Morris, like the worst score wins, and everything's like the worst of everything gets all the prizes, which is exactly <laughs> what Morris is all about. <laughs> So I don't know, like, I think E1 or, or the guys, of the publicity people have organized it. So I think that's the theme of it. So I intend to go and I'll probably play the best golf of my life because there'll be, there'll be no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. And there's a few, I think there's some golf pros there and there's a few actors and, oh my God. Um, and, uh, Phil Glenister is going to be there, I think, and Nick Burns and we've got, um, and my dad's coming, which is going to be great. Amazing. So um, that's my next round of golf. All right. Okay. Well, repair your divots, wear your spikes, and yeah, be, be polite. Yeah, get shouted at. <laughs> the hell are you? Get off the course, <laughs> you Ike. I go, do you know who I am? <laughs> yes, I do. And that's why I want you off the course. <laughs> In the RNA, you're going to come, come after me at some point. And by the way, your structure was all wrong. <laughs> your structure is diabolical. You need my critical voice in your head, not Paul King's. I'll tell you how to write a script. <laughs> he's turning into, he's like Vincent Price or someone, isn't he? It's amazing. This is amazing. This is a sequel right here. This is the true phantom of the open uh, right here. Uh, yeah. Anyway, on that note, Simon, always a pleasure. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Chris. Great talking to you. Thank you. Take care. Okay, so that was Simon Farnaby. We'll be talking about Phantom of the Open in just a few minutes because now it's time for the reviews part of the show. The time we tell you what to watch 
whether you're in a multiplex or on your sofaplex this week. And there's a bunch of good films out this week. I should say, first off, that we haven't seen, as in the three of us haven't seen, uh, the return of Ty West uh, to the horror arena with X, but apparently it's fantastic. Mm. Uh, So this is a horror film about a uh, group of uh, porn filmmakers who are trying to shoot a porno and fall foul of someone or something. I think it's just someone. Uh, Haven't seen the film. Tremendously excited about it. We gave it four stars. Sounds right up my street. I'm going to try and watch it this week. The few reviews I've read of this have been very respectful of things like plot developments, which is unusual. (laughs) So so that's good. Uh, So I would say go and see X as fresh as you can to avoid anything being spoiled for you. That said, Amon said the same thing about fresh. So how the fuck are we going to talk about this movie? I'm going to say fairly little, to be honest. So this is a new film from Mimi Cave, um, directing uh, Lauren Kahn wrote it, and uh, very good work from both of them, I have to mm-hmm. say. So this is a kind of, it's a dating horror story. So uh, Daisy Edgar-Jones plays Noah, who is a young single woman. She's kind of average in terms of her life being somewhat together. She's maybe not entirely where she wants to be, but, you know, she's kind of trucking along. And she's also dating on the side and it is unsatisfying, frustrating and generally hell on earth, which anyone who's single will be readily familiar with. Uh, and I then concur. one then one night in the grocery store, she meets this dude and he looks like Sebastian Stan. His name is Steve. He's a doctor. He ticks all the boxes in terms of, you know, apparently human man that you might not mind dating. Everything goes swimmingly at first. There's a couple of tiny pauses in the conversation, but nothing to really worry about. And Mm. then they go away for the weekend and things get deeply fucked up. (laughs) I'm not going to say any more than that, but deeply fucked up. It's tricky, isn't it? Yeah. Is it it a tricky film to talk about? So let's not talk about the plot. Let's talk about about how it makes you feel. (laughs) Um, Because you've said the words, it's it's a horror movie. It is a horror horror movie. Um, And it's also a darkly comedic one. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, And in that that vein, it reminded me uh, of Get Out. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Many times. Some of the things it's exploring. Mm -hmm. And the the tone with which it explores them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I very much enjoy how Sebastian Stan has made his post-Bucky career out of exploring every different flavour of toxic masculinity mm-hmm. uh, and every different flavour of absolute shithead man that you could possibly meet in this world. I mean, he has no compunction whatsoever about undermining his own kind of heartthrob status with the likes of obviously recently Pam and Tommy, uh, going back his role in I, Tonya, uh, and and this like to a to a like a hundred of thousand times worse than any of those. But um mm-hmm. but really it's a fascinating, fascinating performance of him and he's kind of weaponizing his own charm and looks in a way that's fascinating. I think it's a, it's a really, really good work from him. But also, you know, I think Noah, you know, Daisy Edgar-Jones strikes a very difficult balance between being very capable and smart and also being realistically at risk and making the wrong decisions and making bad choices, you know. So there's a, there's a nice kind of sense of quasi-logic to a lot of what happens in this film. Mm. Uh, that means it feels less far-fetched than it really should. Also, really good supporting cast, people like Jojo T. Gibbs and Andrea Bang, really, really good around the edges. Again, don't want to say too much about what anybody's doing, but 
they're doing stuff that normal people would do a lot of the time, even though it's a kind of this very heightened, weird scenario. Interestingly enough, we're talking about so not spoiling this film, and don't worry, I won't. But I watched this film with a Mr. Kim Newman, and Mr. Kim Newman actually spoiled this movie in our pre-movie chat. You know, we were talking about you know normal things like you know best dress competitions, that sort of thing, um, and he just randomly dropped the uh, oh yeah, this is the X movie, and I was like, what? No, X is the Thai West movie. We discussed this. <laughs> Uh, in my mind, I, I didn't even call on it. I was like, okay, sure. And then, you know, the film happens like, oh, okay, that is what he meant. But if you don't yeah. know that a certain tonal shift is coming, when that tonal shift happens, it's really, really great. It's as good a shift in storytelling as I've seen in recent mm-hmm. time. It's really, really great. It's really well done. Mm-hmm. Of course, now everyone's going to be prepared for it and they'll be disappointed when it happens <gasps> because they'll be like, you guys built it up to be such a big thing. It's like the time I, um, I'm not going to name the film, uh, <laughs> but I, I, there's an amazing Kevin Costner film that has an incredible twist. And I said to one of my friends one time, you've got to see this film. You've got to see this film. It's got an amazing twist. It's an amazing twist. Oh my God, you won't believe the twist in this film. <laughs> and so we stick it on 20 minutes and he goes, he says the twist out loud, my friend. And I go, fucker. <laughs> and he went, I only started thinking about that because you said there's an amazing twist. So I started thinking about all the things that could possibly be the twist. And that was the thing that, that seemed to me to be the most obvious candidate for the twist. And I went, well, there's shit. no way out for you, my friend. Anyway, four stars for Thresh. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I was watching this going, you know what? This would be a great spoiler special. Yeah, it would. You know. Somewhere we can actually talk about the fucking thing would be yeah, nice. Yeah. Uh, anyway, maybe that will happen. Maybe it won't. We shall see. Four stars, though, for Fresh. In the meantime, go and see it as fresh as you can. Uh, bring a date. Oh, God. Next up. What is next up? Next up is, I think, the first three movies this this week, X aside, and we haven't seen X, and I think X is actually connected as well. Um <laughs> all feel a little bit connected to me. Mm. Some of them are about dating. Some of them are about the dangers and the horrors of dating. Uh, all of them have rumpy, pumpy sex in our minds. So obviously, as a dyadable British man, I'm going to faint now and pass out <laughs> while Amon describes deep water in which uh, Ben Affleck and Anna de Armas... Um... <laughs> they barely do anything. It's That's fine. the thing, right? That's the thing. I was so disappointed. I was told this was the return of Adrian Lyne, the king of the erotic thriller, the guy who directed Fatal Attraction. And I was expecting rump and pump from morning to night. And it feels like... It's mostly dinner parties. It feels like it's all been left on the cutting room floor. So it it disappoints in that that regard, if indeed that is what you're looking at films like this for. (laughs) If you're, you know not a tawdry individual like me, perhaps just looking at films for things like good plot and characters. <laughs> Does that movie deliver on this front? I'm on. Yeah, not really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but to set up a little bit more, uh, Deepwater, based on a novel by Patricia Highsmith, uh, you got Hi, Vic- <laughs> you got Vic played by Benjamin Affleck. You have Melinda. Benjamin Affleck. <laughs> Do you think anyone's ever called him Benjamin Affleck? That man, I mean, I love him to bits, but that man is not a Benjamin. <laughs> ben Travis is a Benjamin. Ben Affleck is not a Benjamin. Okay. Rewind. You got Vic played by Ben Affleck. And is Melinda- that Victor? <laughs> Sorry. 
Orleans. I believe they're played by Anna de Armas. They live in New Orleans with their young daughter, <laughs> who's very, very funny all the way through this film. Uh, the end credits especially are great. Um, but yeah, Vic is a, a former tech designer living in a marriage of mind games here uh, with his younger wife because uh, Melinda likes to fool around with any cute guy she sees, basically. Um, and after Vic makes a joke about killing one of Melinda's friends with Benny's, um, I'm saying Ben a lot here, aren't I? Mm. <laughs> Uh, then that arouses suspicion in the community because the body of said person turns up. And that is our plot. Um, and yeah, you would expect some you know, steaminess, especially given that uh, Ben and Anna were in a relationship which has since concluded, robbing us of what would have been an epic press tour. But it's okay. <laughs> I'm fine. Um, uh, but yeah, they, they have chemistry together in bits. My issue with this is that as you mentioned, this is, this is built as, as an erotic thriller and the eroticism isn't really there. And the thriller mm-hmm. elements aren't really there either because it never takes the time to really set up the stakes. So that's an issue. And then the other issue is that it feels very repetitive mm-hmm. in that, um, you know, Melinda cheats, Vic sees Melinda cheating, gets upset. There's a confrontation and then we just repeat. Like it happens like three times over the course of the movie. The characters mm. never really change. Um, so that's a bit disappointing, but I think Anna de Armas is fantastic in this role. She's very, very sensual all the way through, very, very passionate. All of that comes through on screen. And I think Ben Affleck does his best to be in gone go mode. Uh, the script can't quite serve him to elevate that performance to what it should be. But I think his is a solid performance as well. I just mm. wish it was in a better script. Yeah, I feel like he's... The, the problem is he's playing this kind of hangdog character and he's next to this luminous woman and you're just... He, he kind of gets lost in the mix sometimes and it's really a film that focuses on his point of view and his story rather than hers. So mm. you, you kind of get frustrated sometimes because you're like, I mean, he's just sitting moping again. Why are we not following her? <laughs> She's doing Netflix. stuff. Yeah, it's it's very sad flag. So I uh, that that's a little confusing. And... There's it. It's a slow burn in a way that feels um, it feels like a throwback, and and I think that's actually one of the, the things that I kind of liked about it because once you get into that very slow burn, you know, it does really feel like you're watching one of Adrian Lyne's films from the from the eighties or something, um, and it's something we've kind of maybe we haven't had in a while, and that was kind of just interesting to have to make that shift. But at the same time, I'm not sure. Like as as you said, there's a the, the slow burn sections are kind of repetitive, and there's not a huge amount of detail and intrigue that's added by all that extra time. So it can get frustrating because you're like, okay, can we? I get it. Well, you you said this already. Mm-hmm. Let's move on. So mm-hmm. yeah, I was a little frustrated with this as well. But you know, it's it's nicely shot. It is they are good performances and and a very good supporting cast around them as well. It's just not quite all it could be. Mm. I do love that, you know, films like this are being made again, though, um, because this Well, feels... are they? I mean, we'll see if this does well. If yeah. you're going to make them, it won't. It won't. Spoiler alert, it, it won't. won't. No. Uh, oh. It's it's being dumped. This is the most yeah. dumped film in the history of, of films being dumped. <laughs> it's on Prime Video, uh, so it's been dumped on Prime Video, and, uh, you know... If you're going to make a film like this, make the film make a film like this, is, is basically what I would say. And I listen... No one's crying out for a return to the glory days of Sandily uh, and, and films <laughs> like that. But my feeling with something like this is if you're going to promise an erotic thriller, then deliver an erotic thriller. Mm-hmm. And, you know, frankly, this kind of 
feels watered down version of this movie isn't going to grab anyone. Yeah. And you know, you know, sometimes it feels like they almost they, they almost needed to lean into the more tawdry uh lurid aspects of it a little bit. Um if you if you you know if we keep hearing so much about how Affleck and Arma sizzle on screen, and that's the see them sizzle on screen, or see them sizzle with other people on screen, or you know, throw a few dogs and cats in there. I don't really know, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> the, the the you know, it just feels to me like sex sells, but in order to do so, you have to have some sex in your movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that regard, it just feels really kind of neutered and yeah, lacking in tooth and claw and and dangly bits. So we gave this one two stars, two stars then for Deep Water. Uh, but next up we have Jacques Odiard's Paris 13th District, which is uh, an exploration of the modern dating scene mm. in Paris, uh, I would say. And this is a bit like the French version of Portals in that it is <laughs> it is Jacques Odiard, but it's also working from a script that he co-wrote uh, with Celine Siama. Yeah, it is. And Leia Missius also wrote the screenplay. Uh, but this is uh, Shaco Diard, of course, the director of A Prophet. And if you've seen that movie, this is very different territory. <laughs> very, very much. Um, it's based on three different short stories by Adrian Tamine, who's a, an American, I think, writer. And it does sometimes feel like that. It does sometimes feel like three very different parts that have been sort of woven together in ways that don't always quite flow as well as I wanted. But um but it is interesting and it certainly has the rumpy pumping that, that was missing from Deep Water. I mean it is a French <laughs> film after all. So uh Lucy Zhang plays um Emily, uh, who we meet at the beginning, uh, obviously naked and singing into a karaoke mic. Uh, she is looking for a new flatmate and she finds uh, Camille. Now, she sees the name Camille and assumes it's a girl. It's actually a guy played by Makita Samba. And they strike up a relationship, but he isn't sure that he wants to be in a relationship. Maybe uh, she's she's quite keen, but it doesn't seem like it's going to last. Cut to a few months later, uh, where we meet Nora, who's played by Naomi Merlon, and she is trying to start a new life as a law student. Um, she's a little bit older than her fellow students, but she's excited to be in law school. And then a rumour goes around that she is a cam girl uh, called Amber Sweet. And uh, this basically destroys her happiness. She can't get by in law school. She uh, is having a very difficult time. And she starts talking to the real Amber Sweet, who is not her, played by Jenny Beth, mm-hmm. and uh, trying to f- kind of, I, I guess, just figure out how this all happened and, and, and sort of come to terms with the bullying that she received. So mm-hmm. that's sort of the setup. And then Sebastian Stan turns up. <laughs> no, at least look, the, the dating scene in Paris in this as portrayed in this film is difficult and you sometimes get your heart broken, but you know, it's a little That's bit better than the goes. one in Fresh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um But Camille and Nora, you know, pat cross paths as well and, and there's there's a whole just messy kind of ecosystem of of people trying to figure out what they want, who they want, what their priorities are in life and uh, and generally kind of come to terms with who they are and and love and everything else. It's a slightly more optimistic film than I was maybe expecting from from this director and from this filmmaking team. Very handsomely shot in black and white. I don't think it's going to change the world. I feel like I was expecting a bit more given some of the hype for this film and given some of the praise. Um, But by the standards of the erotic thrillers that we've seen this week, this is 
definitely the cheeriest <laughs> and um, by some distance. And I don't know if it's the best. No, fresh is the best, but it's it's a very good one. I don't know. I really liked it. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was tremendous, and you know, I I was I was won over by all the characters. The they're they're each spiky and difficult mm-hmm. in their own ways, but um, but Odiard finds really really lovely ways of showing the connections that they make between themselves. You know, the, you know whether it's it's virtually or or physically, and. It's beautifully shot, really, really well performed. It's you know, it's it it, it feels very much of you know, very timeless, but also very much now. Paris is you know showing the multiculturalism of Paris, and um, I I and I, I I kind of fell for it. If I'm honest with you, I was thoroughly beguiled by all the lead characters, the mm-hmm. quartet of lead performances, and I thought it had just interesting things to say about about love and finding love and and happiness in, in the modern world. Really good stuff uh, for me. And uh, also, you know, I passed my two-year anniversary of trying to learn French and Duolingo this week. Ah, felicitations. And, uh, sorry. And, uh, you know, it's such an interesting thing. I, I always feel like I've done okay, that I'm much better now at French than I ever was after five years of doing it at school. Uh, and then I see a French movie. And I don't understand a fucking word they're saying. <laughs> and I need to improve massively because, you know, now and again you hear a word, but it's just, you know, they speak so quickly, but then French people would hear us and think we speak so quickly. And, ah, mm. oh, it's, it's, I, I've got a long way to go. I think I, another two years of Duolingo and I might be able to watch a film like this without the subtitles. As it is, I'm lost. But uh, that's a personal note. <laughs> that's my failings. Helen, you can speak French, right? I'm very rusty, but yeah. Okay. Have you sort of a petit pois? Oh God! <laughs> have you tried recently, like watching a French film without subtitles, or have you ever done that? Uh, yeah, or read yeah, a yeah. French book, or yes, I'm, yeah, I'm toying yeah. with that. I'm much better at re- reading French than I am at understanding it. Huh? Um, but yeah, I have. I have done both. Um, I just uh, I, I did glance at the subtitles this time, but I didn't always need them in every scene. But um, but no, I, I look. I did like it. I just I, I mm. prefer fresh uh, in terms of the films of this week. But mm. uh, I don't think it's badly done. Yes, and uh, we're kind of in the same camp as a magazine. We gave this one three stars. Three stars then for Paris, Thirteenth District, or Les Olympiades, as it's known in France. Interesting. Mm. Uh, and lastly, this week we have the Phantom of the Open. It is a golf movie, but don't let that put you off. It's a lot of fun, <laughs> isn't it, among? It is a lot of fun. I actually saw this last year because it was the Empire Magazine gala pick for the London Film Festival. Uh, and it was a good pick indeed. It stars, as you mentioned earlier, Mark Rylance as Maurice Flickcroft. He is a crane operator facing unemployment, but when he gets some inspiration by watching the US Open on TV, uh, he's encouraged by his wife, Jean, played by Sally Hawkins, to enter the British Open, even though he's never picked up a golf club in his life, and he becomes infamous for shooting the worst round of golf in British Open history. Um, and yeah, I really, really enjoyed this. It's very heartwarming. It's very feel good, but it absolutely works. And I always say when it comes to predictable sports movies like this, if you do it right, then I forget about the predictability while I'm watching it and I'm just swept up in the story. And this is definitely one of those. Um, and, you know, I, I read the official Empire Review by the great Ian Freer, and he 
says that there's not a lot of emotional heft to this film. And on one level, I get that. But for me, there is some emotional heft in what it's saying about parenting and about sacrifices that parents make for their kids. And also about holding on to your dreams, no matter what point in your life you're at. And all of that really hit the spot for me. Um, so I really, really enjoyed it on that level. The performances are great. Uh, Sally Hawkins, uh, she's not stretching herself, but she adds a lot of warmth and empathy in this role, especially later on in the film, where the film gets a little bit more emotional and heavy. And Mark Rylance is perfectly cast in this film as well. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. We gave it three. I think I might go four. Ooh. Oh, yeah. wow. Ooh. I, I would be in the three camp, I have to say. I feel like it's weird because we're very used to this movie and it's usually a triumph of the underdog, whether a moral or an actual victory. And this is kind of not that. This is almost a continued losses of the underdog <laughs> over and over <laughs> yeah. and over again. Mm -hmm. And I find it quite stressful in that case, in, in that sense at times because I was just like, I just, I just want this guy to catch a break, you know, and, and obviously... As the film kind of shows us, you know, he has had great luck in his life, um, ultimately. But I, I just, I wanted more for him, and I wanted maybe a little bit more from the film itself. I feel like it's such a whimsical story, inherently, that you could have taken a, a more grounded approach to the storytelling than the film does, because it goes, it goes kind of magical realist at times, and and it, they're beautiful scenes. But I'm not sure that this film needed them. What Craig Roberts did there, I maybe just. I, I just didn't feel like it 100% needed to be there. But I, I, it does look lovely and it, and it kind of gets, I guess, his dreamer side. So I do see why it's there. I just didn't love it. But yeah, look, uh, as you say, great performances. I mean, Mark Rylance doesn't do bad performances, really does he? <laughs> there is one scene, though, with a caravan where I thought I was watching a film version of Jerusalem, his great stage performance, and I kind of wished I was at that point. But apart from that, great. I'm a little bit more, more with him on in this one. I thought it was thoroughly charming. Um, it doesn't hit the heights of Paddington 2 in terms of Simon Farnaby written movies, but then again, I mean, who what does? does? What does? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but uh, it is, it's, a, it's a whimsical, wistful look at what it takes to keep going uh, in the face of overwhelming odds, something I think we can all relate to at the moment. Uh, so we gave us one three stars, three stars then for the Phantom of the Open. And on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. I think, yes. Yes, it is. We it made is it, it, guys. We made it. We made it through this week's Empire podcast. Uh, I hope you did too, if you're still listening. Uh, I should mention as well that the Nan movie in which Catherine Tate um, returns bread. as her beloved, <laughs> yes, uh, as her beloved character, Nan, um, written co-written by Brett Goldstein. Uh, is out this week and has not been shown to press at mm. time of recording. Uh, we can only assume because it's too good. It is too effing good. Uh, and so that is something we can maybe talk about on next week's show, assuming any of us are brave enough to go near it. <laughs> so, um, so there you go. The Nan movie is also out this week. Anyway, join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by... Renate Rensve, star of the fantastic Norwegian movie The Worst Person in the World. She is not the worst person in the world. Correct. Uh, she is a very good person, uh, I have been led to believe. I've never had the pleasure. So she might be terrible for all I know. Um, 
The worst person in the world at one point might well have been Mark Chopper Reed, the notorious Australian criminal, who was the subject, of course, of Andrew Dominic's phenomenal movie Chopper, which is getting a re-release next week. Cleaned up all sorts of bells and whistles. It's never looked better. And we're also joined on next week's show by Andrew Dominic himself. So that is exciting. And... Yes, it's another it's another one. It's a hat trick of guests, folks. I can't stop myself. We'll be joined by Jake Gyllenhaal and Yahya Abdul Mateen II, stars of Michael Bay's new explosive thriller, Ambulance. That's one heck of a lineup. <laughs> Michael Bay and explosive, two words or two <laughs> they just they just go together. They go together, don't they? Like Sam Raimi and Goat. It's just <laughs> like some paddy and snakes. It's it's all happening on next week's show. But anyway, until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye for my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. And their squadcast names Kamala Khan, spelled C A N. Very clever. Uh, Lee Greenly attired a Mon Warman. <laughs> Thank you for acknowledging that. Peace. <laughs> it is goodbye from Paris, 15th District, Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. Yes, see, I used to live in the Kansiem, so I couldn't just claim I lived in the 13th. That would be crazy. Oh, God. I'm oh, in the, the 13th, 13th District. Yeah. Oh, oh, no, really. Rubbish. Like You don't want to live in the 13th. It's not as cool. You don't. It's the 15th. No, no 15th. Just 15th is the best. Uh, and it's goodbye for me, the phantom menace of the open. In a shock twist, I'm off to drive the snakes back into Ireland. <gasps> uh, just for a day or so, I'm going to take them around, see the sides, a bit of a chance causeway, then take them down to Newcastle for some ice creams at the beach. Then back in the fan, lads. Sorry, it's over for you. <laughs> but maybe this means, could I become St. Christopher? Oh, no, already is one. Damn it. Damn it. Damn you, oh, St. No, Christopher. Isn't. He's apocryphal. Oh, he's apocryphal. Ha! I was going to say, he'd made a powerful enemy of me in this day, but... I'm in. St. <laughs> Christopher signing off. Thank you for listening. <laughs> See you next week. Bye. Right at the back there, lads. Bye.